So in the beginning of my book, I start with a story of Black Friday in Target uh, several years ago where a 61-year-old man collapses to the floor from a heart condition. He has a heart attack. And he lies on the floor for minutes and minutes and minutes, and no one helps him. So this, is, this matters. This, you know, this is really important stuff we're talking about, not just academic you know, research that gathers dust in, yeah. in, in the libraries. Welcome to the Veritas Forum podcast. My name is Caleb Godhart, and I'm the online and social media manager for Veritas. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Christian Miller, a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University, who recently released a book entitled The Character Gap, which attempts to answer the question, how good are we? After years of researching hundreds and hundreds of psychological studies, that put people's character to the test, Christian came to the conclusion that we're not as virtuous as we like to think, that there is a gap between how good we should be and how good we actually are. Over the course of our conversation, we discuss his extensive research on character, some strategies for improving our own character, and how the rituals and community of religious practice, specifically within Christianity, may help shape us into becoming better people. Christian, could you tell us a little bit how you got interested in character? My interest in character goes back many, many years, probably back even to high school. That's when I first started thinking about philosophical questions. Uh, I was reading people like C.S. Lewis, and they presented me with for the first time with questions about the meaning of life, does God exist? what's right and wrong, and what kind of person should I become. But my interest deepened much more in college. There I had a chance to more formally study the topic of ethics with uh, some professors at Princeton University who introduced me to um, the question of what is character in the first place, Mm. uh, what is the difference between good character and bad character, and what steps might we take to develop a better character. Uh, It persisted with me throughout graduate school. I went to Notre Dame which at the time was one of the best places to study character and virtue uh, in, in the country. And then uh, just persisted still further when I went to Wake Forest University, where I'm a, currently a professor. I got especially interested in a debate about the empirical adequacy of character. That means, <laughs> does character even exist in the first place? Yeah. Back in the 1960s in psychology, there was this active debate uh, under the heading of situationism. And what people were wondering about was, uh, does a stable and consistent character trait like honesty or compassion exist in real people? I mean, we understand what the definition is, what the Mm. concept is, and the theoretical idea, but is it an empirical reality? And in particular, people were worried about whether uh, behavior was more a product of the situation you're in and the environment and external forces as opposed to something that's internal to you as a person, as part of your character traits. But philosophers much later got wind of it, and they got excited about it too, and they kind of reinvented the wheel a little bit. I thought this was a really interesting debate, and I uh, had some things to say. And so that's what really uh, I can finalized and cemented my interest in character. Yeah. In, in your own words, or briefly, how would you describe this idea, the character gap? Sure, sure. Um, 
I would say, put it this way, it's the gap between how we actually are and how we should be. Mm. So how we should be is a virtuous person. Yeah. A really good person. Someone who is compassionate, honest, kind, and so forth. How we actually are, well, that depends on the person. But according to my reading of the research, many of us are not like that. Mm. So we're, we're a mixed bag yeah. of good and bad. So the character gap is the gap between how we actually are and how we should be. Yeah. One of the more, um, I guess, startling uh, arguments you put forward in your book is this idea that most people don't have any virtues. They haven't attained any sort of virtue, um, but they also maybe haven't um, attained any vices either. What would you say to someone who's sitting there thinking, hey, I'm a pretty honest person. Um, I've lied occasionally, uh, I, but last week I probably didn't lie that much, or I'm not like a pathological liar. What would you say to that kind of person? That's a great question. So my view is that um, I was interested in the question of how virtuous or vicious are people. Hmm. And I could look to different sources of information to try and answer that question. I could go to the Bible. I could go to human history. I could go to the contemporary hmm. news. Um, lots of, uh, I could go to politics. That would give me lots of you know, uh, information, <laughs> maybe not so helpful, but sure. um, lots of sources of information. But what I wanted to look at in particular were con carefully controlled studies in psychology, hmm. which would put people in different environments and see how they would react to the moral uh, dilemmas or moral questions or challenges that were facing them. So over the course of several years of research, I read hundreds and hundreds of studies having to do with helping, harming, cheating, lying, stealing, all down the line. And I came to the conclusion, not on the basis of one study, which would be you know, a terrible inference, right. but the basis on, of hundreds of these studies, that the pattern of behavior we see in these participants is not what I would expect of a virtuous person. Mm. But also, it's not what I would expect of a vicious person either. Mm. So let me give you an example of one study to see where I'm coming from. And then it will also relate to your question okay. too. So uh, in this study done to test cheating, uh, there were three different groups. There was one group uh, where people would come in they would take a test, it had 20 problems, they would be paid 50 cents per correct answer. They would take the test, work as hard as they can, turn in their answer sheets, the person in charge would grade the answer sheets, they get paid accordingly, no opportunity to cheat, cut and dry. Hmm. They would get about seven problems correct on average. Another group, different people, would come in, they would uh, have the same test, same incentive, 50 cents per correct answer, but they would get the opportunity to grade their own answer sheet. Hmm. And when they were done, they would shred their materials and verbally report how many they got correct. So this gives lots of license for cheating, and there's no way uh, for anyone to double-check the, what they actually got right or wrong. Okay. So they could do whatever they want. Um, here, uh, cheating doubled. Wow. Um, now, that's not the right way to put it. Um, <laughs> what the right way to put it is the number of answers in quotes was 14. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, now, it's possible that these people just were so smart that they got the, the test questions right on their own. This was just a much, much better group than the first group. Uh, but That's doubtful. Very doubtful. Very <laughs> unlikely. Um, much more likely that they cheated. So the number of cor correct, in quotes, answers doubled. A third group, so this is still the same kind of experimental setup. Um, they were ones, and there's been different versions of this third group, um, but let's just take one where they had to first recall the Ten Commandments as many as they could. Then they were given the opportunity to take the same test, 
and cheat if they wanted to and get paid accordingly. Mm. In this setup, there was no cheating. Wow. Right. Um, and there are different versions of this. It's not specific to the Ten Commandments. If this was students, if they were asked to sign their school's honor code, then that would have the same effect as well. Cheating would disappear. So, again, I don't want to draw any big conclusions from one study. Sure. But this nicely, I think, encapsulates or summarizes my thinking. Because on the one hand, you have people behaving quite badly. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're, they're cheating when they know they can get away with it. And they think it's worth it. They, there's a reward. So that doesn't suggest honesty. On the flip side, you have people behaving quite well. Mm. Um, I would not expect a dishonest person to stop cheating just because they recall the Ten Commandments or sign an honor code. Uh, I would think a dishonest person who sees an opportunity to cheat and get paid would cheat and get paid, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that would, they might go through the motions of signing the honor code and like, you know, rattle off some Ten Commandments, but then they would just turn around and cheat some more. Mm. So here we get what I call mixed character. We have, on the one hand, not good enough for virtue. On the other hand, not bad enough for vice. So now we come to um, your friend who says, well, I, you know, I think I'm a pretty honest person. Uh, I may, you know, cheat on occasion. I might, adjust, you know, fudge my income taxes from time to time or tell some, some lies once in a while. And I would say, great, first of all. You know, mm-hmm. that's much better than what you could be doing. You know, you know <laughs> right. big thumbs up. Um, yeah. And I'm not here in the business of judging you in particular. That's not my job. Um, but if we really want to probe people's character, it can't just be the situations that they have been in the course of their daily routine, mm. their, their habitual, uh, you know, day-to-day life around other people, their families, their coworkers, and so forth. I also want to see how they would behave in some of these other situations mm. where the environment is different, mm. where some of the punishments are taken away, mm. where some of the temptations are present that might not ordinarily be present in life. So how would that person behave yeah. if they were given the test? Yeah. An opportunity to cheat. Absolutely. Well, that's where you cite this line in, in the book about character is this well-known maxim, I guess, that character is what you do when no one's looking. Right. And that seems to be when our character is most put to the test. Right. And a lot of these psychological studies that you're highlighting are based on that sort of um, unique circumstantial presence that allows uh, people's characters to manifest. For you, you mentioned the the cheating example as very illuminating. What are some of the most, besides the cheating example, mm-hmm. what are some other really um, informative and illuminating research examples that you came across? Sure. Let's switch from cheating to helping or, as the case may be, not helping. That sounds good. Uh, so I'll give you one, a, a classic one, and then we can talk about others as well. So a classic one going back to the 1960s has to do with the bystander effect. Mm-hmm. So this is a situation like the following. Uh, You're a participant who signed up for a study. You're told that the study involves filling out a survey. So you come into a room, you sit at a table, you start working on the survey. Another person comes into the room, a stranger to you, who also looks like they volunteered for the same study. They've got the same survey. They sit down at the same table. They're working on their survey. You're working on your survey. The person in charge who gave you the surveys leaves, goes into the next room, you hear that person doing some things in the next room, like climbing a ladder. Then you hear a big crash, oh, no. and a person starts screaming in pain, saying, my, my ankle or my leg, uh, help me. And they're, they're clearly, uh, something's, something terrible is going on in the next room. Okay, 
<laughs> so let me stop there. It seems clear a compassionate person would do something to help at this point. You would hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, I, I, that's hope. I would expect. Expect, you know, would yeah. Expect, it seems like yeah. a um, bare minimum. So now here's the, 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 the complexity. Uh, if you were in the room by yourself as a participant, so not like I described it, but you were just by yourself, 70% of the time people would help. Which is, that in and of itself is not a great number. I mean, I would, you know, I would hope that for 100% there. But 70% did help, whether that was calling and saying, do you need help, or going into the next room and checking on the person, 70% help. However, if you were in the original setup that I described with the stranger, and the stranger does nothing, after the crash, just continues to fill out that survey, you are very likely to do nothing yourself. In fact, in that original study, only 7% of participants did anything to help. My goodness. So 7% versus 70%. In the same situation, with the only difference being the stranger in the room not doing anything to help with you. So this has been uh, very influential. There have been all kinds of replications. There have been different versions of it. So instead of someone falling off a ladder, there's one where... A person's getting an electric shock, um, like electrocuted trying to, to uh, repair an outlet. There's another one where a bully is beating up a child. Uh, and the, the question always is, will a participant in a group of non-helpers do anything to help? And usually the answer is no. So this is very discouraging, right? right? You know, and... It's not just a relic of the lab either or of, of psychological research because sometimes you might say, well, you know, this is just because they were in a study and it's very artificial and they know it's not real life. So you, how much can you really extrapolate from that? Well, we've actually seen over the years real world analogs of this happen. Mm. Um, so in the beginning of my book, I start with a story of Black Friday in Target uh, several years ago in, in this Target store in West Virginia where a 61-year-old man collapses to the floor from a heart condition. He has a heart attack. And he lies on the floor for minutes and minutes and minutes. And no one helps him. And people continue to shop. They, you know, they, turn, they turn around and go the other direction. Or in some cases, they even step over his body mm. to continue to shop. Why? Well, um, same phenomena is going on. No one else is doing anything, so I'm not going to do anything. Um, it was only after quite a while that some nurses came along. They tried to um, give him CPR and resuscitate him, but it was too late. Mm. On the way to the hospital, he died. Wow. So this, is, this matters. This, you know, this is really important stuff we're talking about, not just academic you know, research that gathers dust in, yeah. in, in the libraries. Let's maybe transition into some strategies for becoming better people. To if if we've read up to this point, we're discouraged. We're we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the target shopper and and realizing we might have not done something either. And we're grappling with that. Mm-hmm. For you, what as you kind of develop this research, what have been some of the more encouraging or um, more tenable ways to go about developing good character? Sure. Sure. Good question. Uh, so I, you could be discouraged at this point. Uh, you could be slightly encouraged too. So it's always I always have to people like to go right to the 
the kind of depressing studies and we talk about them. <laughs> they're very famous. They're very interesting. Yeah. Um, but remember, it's, it's a story about mixed character. Mm. So it's meant to have a good side to it, too. We're not nearly as bad as we could be. Mm. There are not many, as far as I can tell from these, this research, dishonest or cruel or you know, hateful people, uh, again, mm. from the studies. So nevertheless, it's still a character gap. It's yeah. still a big character gap. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that gap exists in my you know, my, uh, my heart too. And I want to try and take steps to try and bridge that gap. Mm. One strategy that shows lots of promise, I think, is trying to find people in your lives, in your life, uh, who can serve as moral role models, mm. not just role models say, of a- athletic success or academic success. Those are really important too, but role models of moral excellence. So that can go in a variety of different directions. It might be, you know, reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln and learning about his life and then trying to adapt some of the things he did to your current situation. Or it might be um, just looking to your your grandmother and, you know, learning about her life and talking with her and kind of trying to see the way, the world, the way she sees it. Mm. So that, that becomes more of the way you see the world. So those moral role models um, can provide examples of how to act. They can also provide advice. Uh, They can provide kind of uh, support and comfort. Um, And they can be just a source of general wisdom Mm. to think about um, becoming a better person. What's interesting, too, so you talk about, yeah, these more kind of secular strategies for character improvement, but you also dive into... Um, religious strategies, particularly uh, a framework with, within the Christian worldview for becoming a better person. Could you talk a little bit about how that makes sense for you? Sure. Uh, so in the last chapter, what I wanted to do was spend some time on religious ideas. And I, I did that, I mean, for, the, for one obvious reason, which is that the majority of the world is religious. Mm-hmm. The world religions have lots to say about character. Mm-hmm. It seems just... Uh, It'd be surprising to not tap into that, look into it a little bit and see what it is available to maybe use to help bridge the character gap. And I chose Christianity for a couple of reasons. One, it's personally relevant to me. So I was one also was more informed about it and I could mm-hmm. speak maybe a little bit more uh, you know, helpfully about that religion. Two, it's the world's largest religion. Uh, three, it has a long history of talking about character. So it's mm. just very rich materials about character development and improvement. So that's my thought process while making it clear that I'm not saying that Christianity is the only religion that has anything valuable to offer mm-hmm. about character and not using this as a kind of apologetic to try and convince people to become Christians. <laughs> uh, it's just selecting one religion for the reasons I outlined and seeing what it has to, to help us, to sure. teach us. I take three lessons from Christianity. Uh, first is that uh, religious and specifically Christian practices can help a lot in developing a better character. I'll come back to that in a second. Secondly, um, for Christianity, character development happens best in a social environment. And third, uh, Christians can't make themselves perfect or improve their character dramatically on their own. They need divine assistance. So on the first point, uh, Christianity is, has embedded in it lots of 
practices, religious practices, which can make their followers better people. Prayer, for example, can foster humility, can foster honesty with oneself, can foster forgiveness. Um, confession can foster, again, similar traits like honesty, forgiveness, humility, and combat things like pride and guilt and self-reliance. So these practices, others like tithing and uh, working with the poor and reading the Bible, and these Christian practices um, have in them the resources to develop a better character. Hmm. But secondly, Christians don't think of this as something that happens kind of monastically, although it can. Of course, it's a monastic tradition, right? <laughs> um, but normally the way it's thought of is these practices are carried out in community with other Christians, uh, whether that's in a church or a small group, uh, whether that's you know, uh, in a formal institutional environment or whether it's in the, in the comforts of one's own home. Uh, the idea is that with other Christians around, that can provide further support, guidance, wisdom. It can, again, um, foster things like humility, uh, you know, need for help for others, uh, develop a sense of forgiveness, and so forth. And of course, the uh, biggest social relation of all is between the Christian and God. That's mm. the social relationship that's at the very heart of Christianity. But then finally, the third point that I focus on in this chapter has to do with divine assistance. And this is an element that is distinctive in certain ways to Christianity that you don't see exact analogs in other religions. Sure. So in Christianity, there's the idea that God's a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we'll spend the next 20 minutes discussing that. Uh, we can, sure, sure, sure. I, I would love to. Um, I got all, all, all the time in the world. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, one part of that is this idea of the Holy Spirit, one of the persons of the Trinity, who in the life of the believer, the Christian believer, is supposed to be contributing to character development mm. too. So it's not just the Christian, even with other Christians, kind of through his or her own strength, making this happen. It's, yes, maybe some of that, but it's also God in the form of the Holy Spirit uh, assisting the process of what's called sanctification in, in Christian lingo, uh, the process of character improvement to restore that person to the way God wanted that person to be all along. Hmm. Slow, gradual process. You know, unlikely it's ever completed in this life, but ultimately uh, will be completed in the next life. Hmm. I, I really found that part of the book really fascinating to, to introduce this idea of the Holy Spirit as a, a vessel for character development. What about, I think I'm thinking of a lot of people who have maybe left a religious practice or left Christianity and you know, would cite this guilt that God is angry with them, that their actions are not good enough, and it was just this guilt and shame was actually a, a prime motivation to leave this sort of religious mm. system. How do we maybe reframe this idea of divine assistance in a way that's not like God's watching you and he's making sure you don't mess up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that would be really unfortunate. Um, and if that's something that people took away from the end of the book, I would be very discouraged. <laughs> um, yeah, so I want to be very emphatic that uh, the idea is not that God is now more involved in one's life in such a way that 
God's keeping an extra scorecard. Mm. And, you know, you've got to be on your best behavior now because if you start making, making mistakes at this point, you're going to get an even worse punishment or, <laughs> you know, it got to be extra special, you know, angry or upset with you. That's not the, mm. the picture at all. Uh, I mean, I'm not a theologian. I'm a philosopher. You know, right. I don't want to speak very authoritatively about these matters. But my sense is the picture is in becoming a Christian in the first place, those issues are taken care of. Mm. You know, uh, forgiveness is bestowed. Grace is is received. Um, there is no condemnation anymore. Mm. Um, it's, the life one lives is not to be fear of punishment. It's meant to be a celebration of a new life mm. that's free of guilt and free of anger and free of retribution and full of love and full of grace and full of forgiveness. And that, that's Another thing that the Holy Spirit could contribute to one's life is a reorientation and a sense that um, this is what it's all about mm. and not uh, a matter of anger, retribution, and punishment. Mm. That's really good. How about a secular humanist who comes to say, I can basically take these ideas in religious practice um, and modify them in a way without ascribing to some belief in God is there something that a religious framework or maybe specifically a Christian framework adds to the process of character development that isn't seen in, in a more humanistic lens? Well, first of all, I would say to that secular humanist, uh, great. You know, if you're, uh, you know, really thinking about the idea of character and you're kind of, kind of convinced by some of these arguments that char- developing character is important and you're looking for strategies to, to improve, um, hey, it's awesome. And you see something of value in religious frameworks, in particular Christianity, that maybe could be translated over to a secular context, go for it. I mm. mean, I, who am I to say right. no, no to that? I mean, give it a try. Hopefully it works um, and it's effective. And I certainly also want to say that uh, uh, religion is not necessary for becoming a good person, mm. uh, on my view. Um, so th- there are examples of honest atheists or agnostics, compassionate atheists, agnostics, and so forth. So I want to be very clear about that. Um, what we're talking about here in this last chapter is more kind of averages or general trends. Um, and my, the, the suggestion I want to make is that, yes, on average, these, having these religious resources and implementing them is a good thing and contributes towards character mm. improvement. And there are various reasons for that. Um, You know, when we go back to things like the practices and the community that we talked about, religion provides kind of lots of institutional and social mechanisms to reinforce these practices Hmm. and these institutions. That's a very abstract point to make, but um, the more concrete point to make is, look, um, a particular religion will have a building, say, where a church meets, and where you go once a week or more, and where you do certain things. And when you start doing those things over and over and over again, week after week, year after year, they become habit forming mm. and they become character building. And it just be- becomes part of one's daily life and weekly life because of the structures that are in place with that religion. It's almost as if within, within the DNA 
of certain religious practice, you have this character forming, like I think of like Jamie Smith who would say that like this, it's a, a liturgy. This mm-hmm. like liturgy is what's forming you as you participate over and over again and, and, and sending you in, in a good direction. That's right. Yeah. So that, I think I agree with everything you just said. That's, that You put it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> As you embarked on this project, what has been most surprising to you as you've been researching character? I would say the most surprising thing when I was researching the topic of character was learning about the temptations and other psychological influences on my behavior that I didn't know about in the first place. Hmm. So the, the ways in which unconsciously I might be led to behave in certain ways that I would not have expected. So going back to our earlier discussion, for example, of the bystander effect, before I learned about that, I never would have thought that fear of embarrassment might play such a big role in my life. Then I read this research about how people were not doing anything in emergencies because, in part, they were afraid of embarrassing themselves. Mm. That would apply to me, too. In, uh, In the famous Milgram shock experiments, from the 1960s, where participants were willing, under pressure from an authority, to turn up an electric shock dial all the way to the XXX level and shock to death a test taker in the next room, uh, I never would have expected those kind of results. What, what explains those results? Our d- deep desire to obey authority figures, also part of our minds, which we might not have appreciated. In another uh, experiment, people helped or not in a shopping mall based upon whether they had passed Mrs. Fields' cookies or Cinnabons. So <laughs> think about that for a second. People who were just pa- passing by clothing stores tended to not help. Same task, helping task, but if you had pa- passed by Mrs. Fields' cookies or Cinnabons and gotten that smell, yeah. you're much more likely to help. What was going on there? A good mood was induced by the smell and helping provide you with an opportunity to maintain your good mood. I wouldn't have appreciated that either. So these, I don't want to dwell on the particular yeah. studies, but the underlying point is that this, this research on character has taught me about a lot of ways in which our minds are more complicated than we might have thought. Mm. And there are lots of uh, inclinations and desires leading us in different directions on moral matters uh, that we might not have recognized before. Yeah. And that's really important to know about and pay attention to and sometimes to combat and work against. Yeah. And I mean, the upshot might just be installing more Cinnabons. After a while, you might get tired of it. If <laughs> yeah, that's <true. laughs> might yeah, that's lose true. their, uh, lose their true. effect. That's completely fair. <laughs> uh, as you look at maybe more inwards towards yourself, how do you, as you've gone on writing this book and maybe during the reception of it, are there any traits that you have been particularly maybe motivated to like seek after and, and develop in yourself? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question because I wouldn't want this just to be an academic exercise. Yeah. I mean, of course, I want it to be helpful for people who read it and not just academically help, interesting, but helpful in their own lives. Uh, but I also want this introspectively to be helpful for me too. And I've three children. So, you know, these, these questions are very much at the forefront of my, my mind. Uh, I think it's done two things. 
probably more, but two, two things come to mind right off the bat. One is taught me how far I fall short hmm. as well. I kind of reinforced areas in my own life where I'm the character gap is true of me and where I need to make a lot more progress. Um, and secondly, uh, it's um, introduced some dangers too, I think. Um, you know, going around speaking about this and doing interviews and um, writing about it and so forth, uh, that comes with some potential character pitfalls as well. Mm. Uh, you know, character pitfalls having to do with pride and, um, you know, maintaining humility and making sure I, I'm very restrained in what I'm saying and not overreaching and not promising too much and not saying that I've figured it all out and just emphasizing that, that we know so little here. Yeah. Um, and that this, this is really just the first, you know, uh, there's so much more that needs to be done to unlock some of these mysteries of character. Mm. And so I've got to continually remind myself um, that uh, my research is just kind of beginning. It's a lifelong endeavor mm. for, for me. That's yeah. great. Thank you so much, okay. Christian, for being here. It's been a delight to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Find more content like this on Veritas.org. Be sure to follow the Veritas Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.